Okay, good morning, Boker Tov. Welcome back to our Parsha Perspectives for today, the first of the new year. It's great to be back together again in person. Our, our series is still sponsored by our dear friends Becky and Avi Katz and family in memory of Becky's father, David Grossman. Le'ilu Nishmas David Ben Menachem Manish. We remain very grateful to the uh, Katz family this morning. She is also sponsored anonymously for this chus to have a baby. We wish uh, simchas and good news and good tidings to all those who are looking... Uh, Mitzvah to expand their, expand their family. Just a housekeeping note, we are off next week. I'm traveling for a family simcha, so we'll resume two weeks from today. There are previous shirim you could watch and listen to online, and countless other people with better shirim that you could listen to online, but we'll resume a Mitzvah two weeks from today. Okay, Parshas Noach, page 30 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. I always feel, you know, not only metaphysically, not only spiritually, are we turning back the clock when we start again, beginning of the book, there's something special about flipping back to the beginning of the Chumash, being at the very end of Dvarim, and all the pages on the right side, and then all the pages are on the left side, you go back to the beginning. I don't know if there are other arenas of life, or other examples or areas of life, where a group of adults just keep reading the same book over and over and over again, and you keep going back, and it's so familiar, and we know what's coming, and we know how the stories end, and yet, it's as exciting as the first time you read it. Because the Torah is so rich and there's so many layers of interpretation and insight that the text may be the same, but every year when we revisit it, we're different. We're different. The world is different. Our lives are different. Our insight is different. Our wisdom is different. Our life experience is different. Our age is different. So there's something very exciting about going back to the beginning again and approaching the same text and seeing something else that jumps out at you, something else that's new this year. I know that when I look at Mepharshim, I look at Perushim, in one year, eh, that doesn't speak to me, doesn't touch me, doesn't resonate with me, I'm not interested in sharing it. The next year, the very same insider commentary could be like, wow, that's mind-blowing, that's incredible. That's the richness and the vastness of Torah. We should never take it for granted, we should always appreciate it. Eila told us, Noach, this is our annual debate. We won't put it to a vote. Poor Noach. Poor Noach has the unenviable distinction. The name of his parasha, he is an individual every year this time. The great debate around the globe. Are you a pro-Noach, anti-Noach? Is Noach a relative tzaddik, an absolute tzaddik? Are we uh, praising Noach? Are we um, criticizing Noach? You know, is Noach only good for his generation relative to everyone else? You know, or is Noach even, even great objectively in any generation? Rashi. Some say, with such negative influence, such a negative surrounding, such a negative peer group, and yet nevertheless, he emerges the tzaddik. Imagine, just imagine, if he had a great chevra. Imagine if he had great rebbeim. Imagine if he came from a great family. Imagine how much greater he could have been. Or, Yeah, for his generation. He lived among the most corrupt. He lived among the most immoral. He lived among the most unethical. So yeah, relative to them, he was pretty good. But in Avram's generation, he was a big nothing. He was nothing special. 
nothing special. We've discussed this many, many times in the past. We're not going to revisit it. Notice that when it comes to those who, who extrapolate, those who analyze and understand in the form of praise, it's yesh meraboseinu. For those yesh dorshan legnai, it doesn't say meraboseinu. Why? Because a Rebbe, a teacher, always will see the good. The fact that there are cynics who will see the bad, there are sarcastic, cynical people looking to poke a hole, to be hypercritical, to see the negative, to say, ah, not so impressed. They're honoring him, but there's nobody else. Not because he's good, she's amazing. There was no one else. If there was someone else, they're a big gurnished. They'd never be honored. That's not Yesh Mirabosenu. That's just Yesh Shadorshim. We've seen many, many different interpretations. But the question is why would you interpret it Lignai if you could Lishvach? Why would you interpret negatively? Why would you approach? Why would you analyze? Why would you understand Noah through the prism of negativity when you could, when there is an alternative? when there is the option of interpreting positively? Why would you even consider the opposite? Why was one predisposed? Why is the default to look critically rather than to look in a praising way? The author of Navardic says, The truth is we tend to think one is negative, one is positive, one is critical, one is complementary, but they're really both complementary. Both of their conclusions are, that Noach is a tzaddik from his kepala to his fitzalach. Noach is a big tzaddik. That's a song. I didn't make that up. Noach is a big tzaddik. So Noach is a big tzaddik from the top of his head to the bottom of his toes. He's a big tzaddik, Noach. So both of them come to that conclusion. The whole debate is what motivated him, what inspired him, what led to Noach being a tzaddik. The conclusion both agree is Noach is tzaddik. Question is why? Is he internally driven? Is he internally motivated? Does it come from within? Or is he externally motivated? Is it from the outside? It's a whole new interpretation. Normally the annual debate ensues. Shvach or Ganai? Pro or con? Positive or negative? Complementary or critical? But the altar of Navardic says, no, no, no. Both are complementary. Everybody agrees that we are recognizing Noach's greatness, his righteousness. He's a tzaddik. So what's the debate? What's Rashi quoting two sides? The debate is, what led to it? What led to it? Is it internal or is it external? Is he motivated from himself or is he motivated by his, as a reaction, as a response to his, to his surroundings? To his surroundings. But both conclude, both conclude lish, lishvach. So Akash Baruch comes to Noach. Again, big discussion. Ela told us Noach. What are Noach's told us? Not just his children. Shalish Banam, Shem Cham and Yafas. Before you get to his children, Posig reads very, very clumsily. Ela told us Noach, Noach. These are the offspring of Noach, Noach. So the biggest offspring of Noach is, before you get to Shem Cham and Yafas, is, is Noach. Is Noach. Who is Noach's father? Turn back. Because the end of last week's Pasha gave us the lineage. Who's Noach's father? 
Koye Lamech Shva Vashim Shana Shva Miyashana Vayamos. Who is Noach's father? Lamech. In Yiddish, what do you call a low mutzlach? What do you call a reject, eisvarf, failure, no good nick, unimpressive reject? A lemach. They're called a lemach. Why are they called a lemach? Poor lemach. <laughs> Noach is a big tzaddik. Yosef a tzaddik. Avram Avinu. Moshe Rabbeinu. And poor lemach. Noach's father. What's his legacy? That a loser is called a lemach. Lemach's a loser. Lemach, you know, loser. Okay, go back to high school. Why? Why? Why is Lemach? Where does that come from? Rav Weinfeld Shlita. Rav Weinfeld says because Lemach, Lemach didn't accomplish, didn't achieve. Lemach's entire legacy is I may be a nothing, I may be a gurnished. I leave no legacy. I have no accomplishments. I have no achievements. I've done nothing with my life. Whose coattails does he ride? But do you know who my son Noach is? So a person, a person who gives up on themselves, a person who doesn't believe that they can make a difference, a person who doesn't want to leave a legacy, who lives vicariously entirely only through their children, is a lemach, says Rav Weinfeld. They're a lemach. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't have nachas from children. Of course, we hope, we pray, we work hard to be able to have children, and ultimately, we daven hard to get nachas from those children. My uncle, Rabbi Eli Lazar, had a great insight. At a bris of a grandson, he said, we say at a bris, He said, no. Often parents say, I want my child to be great. I want them to do good things, but I want it to be exactly where I'm at. I come to shul at this time. I don't want it to come earlier than me because then they're a religious fanatic. I don't want them to come later than me because then they're a religious failure. What's going to be? I come late. This is exactly when they should come. I talk this much during shul. If they talk less, pff, they've gone to the right. I don't know what someone recently told me. They have a son who lives in Ramada Shkol. He said, Rabbi, he's Haredi. I don't know what to do. I checked my mezuzahs. I don't know what to do. <laughs> I don't want my kid to go too far to the right. I don't want it to go to the left from me. I want it to be exactly. So my uncle, Olav Hashem, said, he said, no, no. Ze'akat on the tefillah for every parent should be ze'akat on not just gadol yiyeh, gadol mimeni. This child should be greater than me, smarter than me, more accomplished than me, a bigger tzaddik than me, should know more Torah than I do, should live more righteously than I do, should be more generous than I am, should be more accomplished professionally and career than I am. That, it's, there's no competitiveness between a parent and child. That's our wish, that's our ambition. So Lemach, Lemach said, you know me? Ah, I'm a nothing, but do you know who my son is? Have you heard of my son? You know, my, he's a tzaddik. He was only Dorish Lashvach. He's a tzaddik. So a person who gives up on themselves, says Rav Weinfeld, a person who doesn't believe they could leave a legacy, who doesn't believe they can have an impact, who doesn't believe they can make a difference, who doesn't believe that they're here for a reason, a mission, and a purpose, who lives vicariously and entirely only through their children, such an individual is a lemach. A lemach is a reject. A lemach is, is a loser, is an underachiever. And that's why Ela told us Noach. Noach is the opposite. Noach doesn't say, do you know who my children are? Sheim, Cham, and Yafas. Ooh, Ivy, Leah, do you know who they are? Yeshiva they got into. You know who they are? How much money they make a year? You know who they are? How many followers they have online? You know who they are? What kind of car they drive? No. What are the toldos of Noach? Noach. Noach. Noach says, me. I have a difference to make. 
I'm going to save the whole world. I'm going to build a teva. I'm going to put everyone in it. I'm going to save the entire world. Ela told us, Noach, you know what is the greatest offspring and legacy of Noach? Noach. Yes, Shem Cham and Yafas. Yes, he becomes the father of the continuity of mankind. Yes, Noach saves the world. But before you get to children and grandchildren, great-grandchildren and Mir Tzashem, don't give up on oneself. 70, 80, 90, 100, 100 years, you could be 100 years old. Herman Woke published his last book, I love to tell you. He was 100 years old, he published his last book. Doesn't matter what age you are, you're not done, you're a toldos yet to create. And what's his biggest told? Eila told us, Noach, Noach. And what's the told of Noach? Tzadik, Tamim. That he was a tzadik, that he was a Tamim. That he was Esalokim Esalich Noach. That is his achievement. So the contrast between Lemach and between Noach never stop believing in ourselves, never stop believing in our capacity, our capability, in our purpose, in our mission, in the difference that we can make. Perek Vav Pasuk Yudalad. So Hashem taps him. The whole world is filled with Hamas. I always can't help but notice the irony of the political movement, terror organization, named after the very cause of the destruction of the entire world. They themselves are Hamas. They are chaos. They are corruption. They are Batishaches. They are Hashchasa. They are destruction. Everything had become corrupt. Here the Mepharshim Chazal tell us it wasn't just humankind, mankind, who were capable of a higher order, a higher purpose, higher living. The animal world became corrupt. The teva itself, it says that the rain penetrated three tfachim into the earth. It had to ki'ilu wipe off a layer of the earth. The earth became corrupt. Earth doesn't make moral judgment. Earth doesn't have free will. The earth, the soil itself became corrupt that it needed to be able to remove eliminate a layer of the earth. There was an article in the Wall Street Journal this week about how floods are good for the world, not for the people who suffer from them. People who suffer from them, our heart goes out, but ecologically or climate perspective, scientifically, the world needs to reset and renew and the earth and the soil require a certain cleansing. So flooding, again, we pray that flooding be victimless, that nobody be affected but the article was all about the science of why floods are good. So that's what it was. Hashem wiped away three tfachim, a layer of earth, because it needed rejuvenation, renewal. The earth needed it? No. So Chazal the Mepharshim explained, when humankind becomes so lost, so upside down and lost, so morally corrupt and confused, when the world is so chaotic, so all of nature is disturbed. So even though animals and vegetation plant life doesn't have free will and doesn't make moral judgments, they are pre-programmed by nature. When nature becomes corrupt, when nature has a virus, so every part of nature is affected and impacted, even the animal kingdom, even the whole world. And I dread and I fear that we're seeing this, that we're living through this, even in our, even in our time, even in our time, there are Gedola Yisrael who said that the moral corruption that led to the destruction of the world pales in comparison to what we're living in today. And they said that before the internet and the billboards, the TV and the images and the icons and the confusion that is absolutely infecting the world today. You can only imagine the mabul 
the flood, because nature, the very definitions of nature, the very things we took for granted of the very definitions of biology and nature are becoming corrupted. They are being impacted by a, a virus. So Kodesh Baruch tells Noach, build a teva and climb inside, get inside. Pasuk says, make for yourself a teva, an ark, out of what? Atzei gopher, gopher wood, and make it with compartments and cover it with tar, cover it with pitch, make it waterproof and penetrable, obviously, if it's going to float, if it's going to be, if it's going to be effective. If it's going to be effective. What... Um, I skipped. Go back to Pasuk Yedalef before we hit Pasuk Yedalef. Pasuk Yedalef. Back to Hamas. It's all about Hamas. Says the altar of Kelm. Recorded the altar of Navarak, now the altar of Kelm. Says the altar of Kelm. The world had become corrupt. They were making terrible moral judgment decision, confusion, lack of clarity. But as the altar of Kelm, we're looking at it through the prism and the perspective, the glasses of a world that has been gifted the blueprint of creation, the instruction manual of life called the Torah. But that generation didn't have it. How were they meant to know right from wrong? How were they meant to know top from bottom? How were they meant to know moral from immoral? Why can't you just take something from your friend? Why can't you be promiscuous with someone to whom you're not married? Why can't you? All the things that they did wrong, the moral chaos they introduced, where does it say you can't? How were they meant to know? Who told them? Where does it say it? What manual? What laws guided them? Were they bound by? How did they know? We take it for granted. But how did they know? How did they know? So the author of Kelm says, a magnificent and a critical insight. He says, Because mankind, common sense dictates, demands that the world live with order, with purpose, with respect, with boundaries. There are things that you don't have to be told. There are things that you don't have to be instructed. Because if you simply look at and contemplate, analyze and understand, if you observe the world, you see its order. You see its order, you see its purpose, you see the way it was designed. That if you remove the boundaries and the borders, if you remove the order, we can't survive, we can't live one moment. If there is no beach, if there is no coast, ask Naples, Marco Island, on the west coast of Florida, which just happened with Hurricane Ian. When the water overrides the, the beach, what happens? Flooding, destruction, you can't survive. Catastrophe, crisis, death. That's why Hebrew is called a chof. Rabbeinu Bachaya says, when a man and a woman get married and they create boundaries to their life, that their relationship now is unique and singular, that they share something, an intimacy that they will not with any other, and they've drawn a strong boundary, what do they stand under? A chuppah, milashon chof, just like the beach, 
Just like the beach, the chof, protects the land from the sea, it's a boundary, so too the chuppah creates a boundary, a home, that the chassan and kala will live on. That's a little bonus Sheva Brachas Torah for you. A little bonus feature. You don't even have to subscribe, you don't have to have to pay, you don't have to be a global member. A little extra bonus material, Sheva Brachas Torah. So, Rabbeinu Bachai writes, the chuppah's miloshan chof, the boundary. So the author of Kelm says, you don't have to be told. You don't have to be given a manual. You don't have to be given a constitution or bylaws. You should simply lose, use your own common sense, your own logic. Look at this world and realize that it has boundaries, that it has order, and that when you remove the order and the boundaries, when you have corruption and chaos, you have destruction. With cold and heat, with, with wetness and dry, fire and water, if it overlaps and touches and bleeds into each other, if you remove the boundaries and the order, you can't survive. You have destruction. I know I harp on this and I keep coming back to this. I'm not hung up on this, but I'm very afraid of this. We're living in a world that is increasingly trying to erase boundaries and borders between genders, between peoples, between nations, between countries. The whole EU is to say there are no distinct cultures, there are no different currencies, there are no different languages, there are no boundaries or borders. Everything, everything in every area and arena of life. There are no moral boundaries and moral borders. There are no borders and boundaries of modesty, of clothing, of appropriateness, of language. There are no boundaries and borders. And the author of Kelm says, you don't have to be told. Any person with common sense looks at the world and realizes that when you erase those and blur those, when you eliminate those, it's the end. It's the end of mankind. It's a flood. The world becomes a place that's a mobble. It's a mobble. By the way, Sfasema says, so where do you go? How do you survive a mobble? How do you survive a flood? Where do you go? What do you enter? Teva. The word teva means an ark, but the word teva also means a word. Teva means the Teva Shel Torah. Says the Sfas Emes, when you immerse yourself and you protect yourself, you find refuge and you find security in the Ark of Torah, the Teva of Torah. We don't have a Teva today. We don't build a large boat today in the moral mabul that is flooding and that is violating the boundaries of the world. We don't enter the Teva, the boat, the ship, we enter the Teva Shel Torah, says the Sfas Emes. We enter the, the Teva, the Ark, not the Ark of a boat or a ship, the Ark that's right behind me. We don't actually go into it. Someone told me an incredible story. They say it's true about a community that a person on Simchas Torah night, a man was so labadek and he drank so much and he never came home. His wife was so worried in the community they had a search. They looked everywhere for him, couldn't find him. Day broke and they went to Dav in the morning of Simchas Torah when they opened the Aaron, they found him sleeping inside the Aaron Kodesh. I don't know if it's a true story, not a true story. That is not what the Sfasem has meant when he said, enter the Aaron Shal Torah, the Ark, the Teva, the Teva Shal Torah. That is not what he meant. I call it a Teva, the Ark. It's the same word in English, Ark. A Teva, Teva means word. The Aleph Bey is the Teva, the ultimate, the highest words there are is the language, the vocabulary of Torah. The ultimate, the first purpose of the Aleph Bey is to teach Torah. That's where we enter. So the author of Kelm says, you don't have to be told. 
You see this in last week's parsha too. The conversation, we don't have time for this right now at length, Cain and Hevel. Shem says, hey, Cain, any idea where your brother Hevel might be? Have you seen Hevel recently? It's a funny conversation. Gersh Baruch satellites in the sky. He's watching always. He knows exactly where Hevel is, knows exactly what happened. Cain, hey, any idea where Hevel is? And what does Cain answer? Shomer I don't know, what am I, now I have to, I'm in charge of my brother? I have no idea, you're God. I don't know where he is. And then he says, your brother's blood is calling out to me from the ground. What's going on in this whole conversation? The Kliakar says, Cain's answer is, where does it say I can't kill my brother? Where does it say? He was annoying. He was aggravating. Where does it say I can't kill him? When did you ever tell me that? Imagine the child beats up a sibling, and then you punish the child. The child says, well, one second, one second. You never told me that rule. You never told me I can't beat him up. Can't beat her up. She's annoying. She's aggravating. Where does it say? Where did you tell me this? When did you sit me down and give me these family rules? Where's the manual? Where's the guide, the handbook? When did you tell me? And that's the Kliakar says the conversation. It's beautiful. Next year, Pasha's Bracious. Take a look. It's beautiful. He says, that's what God's responding. Some things I don't have to tell you. Some things you should know. Common sense. It's the common sense. Your internal moral compass should guide you to right, right from wrong, you don't need to be told. Not everything you need to be told. And my friend Rabbi Kenny Shaiwitz says, maybe that's why Chazal says sometimes, sometimes the Gemara will teach a halacha and will say, what's the Pasuk? What's the Makur? Where do you know that from? What verse do you derive it from? And the Gemara says, Lama likra svarahu. You don't need a Pasuk. Why? Svara. You don't need a Pasuk. When do you need a Pasuk? When you wouldn't have arrived at it without being told. But when common sense would dictate, when simple logic would get you to that destination, lamali kra, why do you need a pasuk? Svaru, it's a svara. So that inside of last week, the altar of Kelm applies on this week. Who told the Dora Mabul? Who told them you can't steal? Who told them you can't sleep with your neighbor's wife? Because you're interested. Who told them there's boundaries? Who said? Who says there's moral boundaries and there's order to the world? Who said? So the author of Kelm says, nobody needs to tell you. Common sense, logic, your internal moral compass should have led you to that conclusion. You have destruction without it. Rav Yerucham, Mashkiach Rav Yerucham in his Das Torah, later in the beginning of Bamidbar, when he talks about the Degolim, the, the camp and the flags, and the way everything was laid out in order, he quotes this altar of Kelm. And he says, the altar of Kelm, order? We gave a whole Shabbos to Drusha once about it. We spoke about the Seder. We celebrate freedom with what? Order, which is a bizarre way to celebrate freedom. Freedom is usually, let's party. Party means no order. We have no agenda. We have no rules. We have no boundaries. Let's just party. That's freedom. Jewish people, we get together with freedom, and what do we do? We sit around a table, and the first thing we sing is the agenda of the evening. Imagine you go to a board meeting, and you sing, old business, new business, let's approve the minutes. We're singing the agenda of the, of the board? That's freedom? The altar of Kelm says, yeah, that's freedom. You can't have freedom without order. And Rav Yerucham says about the altar of Kelm, Hasaba mikel mayakoes im lohamidu es hakisei bimkomo bidiyuk moshikas al maisa chilo Shabbos. My children know this because it's one of my pet peeves. Drives me crazy. Drives me crazy. When my kids get up from the table and the chairs are all over. I was raised, I was taught, you get up, 
and you tuck in a chair. You push in the chair. When you leave the table, the table should look set, orderly, not chaotic. Chairs everywhere. So the altar of Kelm would be as disappointed, he would be as vociferous in his rebuke when a chair was not pushed in as if he saw someone be Mechalal Shabbos. Mechalal Shabbos. So the cynic will say, what the altar of Kelm had OCD? That's what my kids say, Abba, you're so OCD. What's with your hang-up with the chairs? The altar of Kelm had OCD? Chalila. If he did, there was nothing wrong with that. No stigma, no shame, nothing wrong. Out of the shadows, our next episode on anxiety is coming out. We're going to do one on OCD, nothing wrong. But he didn't have OCD. The altar of Kelm said, order, Seder, is like a pearl necklace. What's more valuable on a pearl necklace? The pearls or the string? Objectively, if you go to the jeweler, the pearls are many multiples, exponentially more valuable than the string. The string costs pennies. The pearls cost a lot more than pennies. The pearls are worth a lot more. But if you don't have the string, the pearls fall on the floor, they roll everywhere, you don't have the pearls. So it's not that the string is more valuable than the pearls, but without the string, there are no pearls. And the author of Kelm said, that's the role of Seder in our lives. We don't worship Seder order. We're not obsessed, we're not OCD with it, but rather we see its function, its role, because without Seder, you have nothing else. And that's what the Dor Hamabel should have known. When you remove, when you blur, when you erase the boundaries, you have corruption, you have chaos, and ultimately you have an irrecoverable, irreversible destruction. Okay, Pasuk Yedalad. Now let's fast forward. Hashem recruits Noach and He tells them, make for yourself a atzei gofer. Make for yourself out of gopher wood a teva. What's the word? Which word is extra in that Pasuk? No? Let's put on our thinking hats again. When we started the Parsha Shir many moons ago, I think I had hair when we began, I used to try to get people to think. The Mepharshim, Rashi among them, they're always answering a question. They don't offer a commentary that wasn't stimulated or provoked by a question. They just didn't have the pedagogy to formulate it in a question-answer format. So they just gave a commentary that was helping arrive at the conclusion to answer their question. But every Sforno, Ibn Ezra, Rashi, Ramban, Whatever comment you're reading, the Malbim, the Ksava Kabbal, whoever you're reading, you should ask, what question are they answering? What bothered them? Or, even more basic, when you read the Parsha, read it with an eye towards questioning. So, What word there is unnecessary is extra? Lecha, excellent. Proud, I'm a proud Rebbe of my Talmidim. I could have just said, what? Asei, Tevas Atzei Gopher. Make a teva out of gopher wood. What is the word lecha? Why the word lecha? Why lecha? So Rashi says, Shekidei lahatzlas noach, hayakadosh baruch yachol inko bedrachem rabos, v'chol mataros b'niyas ha-teva, isa b'shvil sh'yachzu kol ador b'tshuva. So madu amalakadosh baruch wa say lecha. Rashi says, it took a very long time to build the teva. And where did noach build the teva? Not in the, not in the backyard, where the HOA president wouldn't see it, where did he build it? Where did he build it? On the front yard. Probably got notice after notice after notice. Your garbages weren't put back in time, and your sukkah wasn't taken down in time. And what's the deal with this ark, Noah? What's the deal with this table you're building? You didn't get approval from the architect committee. What's going on with it? What's with the, what's with the teva? So Rashi already tells us why. Why did Hashem instruct Noah and design in such a way that it took so much time, was so public, so much fanfare, 
attracted so much attention. Why? What did, it, what did Hashem want? He wanted all the neighbors, HOA, leadership, and others, to stop by and say, Noach, what, what's going on here? What's the deal? What are you working on? He said, well, what am I working on? I'm glad you asked. You, Eisvarf, low-life, immoral, corrupt lemechs, you guys, Hashem is about to destroy the world unless you turn it around, unless you get it together, unless you man up. This is it. So I'm building an ark because I'm going to survive, but you're all done. And why did Hashem want that conversation? He wanted them to say, ooh, that doesn't sound good. What can we do about it? How can we change that? So again, for whom was the teva? Not for Noah. Who was it for? The generation, his neighbors, for the surroundings. By the way, the whole world or just the region? I'll say something that might sound heretical to you. I once gave a whole on this topic. Where did the flood happen? Across the entire globe or in Mesopotamia? or in a particular region of the world, which was the inhabited civilized area of the world at the time, but not really across the entire globe. There is a debate among our commentators on this subject, not modern commentators, about the subject. How far and wide did the, did the flood actually occur? Was it the entire globe or was it regional? Maybe just Eretz Israel. there's a whole discussion, just not Eretz Israel. The area, Mesopotamia, but not Eretz Israel. there's a big discussion about it. But the point is it was for Noah's contemporaries. It was not for him, which just makes the question more compelling. If it wasn't for Noah, it was for his contemporaries, then what word is extra? Lecha. What do you mean? For you. Build a teva out of gopher wood. Lecha. For you. So the Sefer Sitcha Elyon answers the following. He says, Noach was sent to awaken, to arouse his generation, his contemporaries to do tshuva. Because you know the best way to inspire others? Is to be inspired yourself. Don't get up on that pedestal. Don't get up in front of that podium. Don't preach to the world unless you start with yourself. Lecha. I say, Lecha. Begin by looking in the mirror. First begin by criticizing ourselves, self-awareness, self-improvement. The greatest way to inspire others is inspire yourself. Inspire yourself to inspire others. So I say, Lecha. It's true that the reason, the goal, was to inspire the contemporaries. Methodology the best way to inspire others was, I say lecha, be on fire yourself. When you're on fire, it'll spread. It'll become contagious and you can light the fire of others. This new set of that I really enjoy. I think Mishpach or Ami, somebody over Sukkot had a feature on the author. Otsar Plo Satora, I don't get any royalties. Rav Zev Zichrman. He's a big veer. Chasid HaShayir is a very, very successful, very wealthy businessman philanthropist, Agvir, who also is a Talmud Chacham, and he used to uh, research fascinating things on the parsha. I was encouraged by Gedol Yisrael to combine them and put them out in Svarim, and he did. Otsar Plos HaTorah. It's fantastic stuff, fun stuff. He says on this Pasuk, he says the following, Mincha Shmuel, who was the Mincha Shmuel? Rub Shmuel Plorintin, who was the Av Bezdan of Salonaki. Born in Salonika, he tells the whole in the footnotes, he gives a biography of each of these obscure, fascinating people he digs up. So the Mincha Shmuel, I never heard of the Mincha Shmuel, on our Pasha Noach says, Dover Nifla, 
שכשם שנוח עשה טבע, כך עשה אדם אחר טבע אחרס כמוסה. נוח had a copycat. נוח had a copycat. He did not um, register, he did not copyright his teva. So what happened to the other guy? There was someone who watched and listened. There was someone who said, you know what? I'm going to hedge myself. He's threatening there's going to be a flood. He's building a teva saying he and his people will survive unless our generation turns it around. You know what? I don't have to turn it around. I'm just going to build my own teva. So what happened to him? Nitba b'mabul. His boat sunk in the mabul. And that's what it says. Vayishair ach noach. Later, Perak Zayin, Pasuk Chav Gimel. Perak Zayin, Pasuk Chav Gimel. Torah says, Vayimach es kol haikum. God erased all of the, everything on the face of Shopnei Adama. Me'adamat be'imad remesh. It was all eliminated, wiped out. Only Noach survived and those with him. Ach. Ach always comes to exclude. What is it coming to exclude? So the Mincha Shmuel says that Adam Hasheni Shagam Kain Asateva Nit Babayam. That we should know in the storyline that there was someone else who built an ark, but he drowned. He didn't make it. He didn't make it. You see from here, Noach was not the first to build a ship. Ships already existed in the days of Noach. As we see, one of them was a captain of a ship. You see already in the time of Avram. Again, it's a fascinating. Historically, when were ships invented? When did sailing begin? Mankind is born on the earth. Who was the first who said, let's build something and test if it floats and travel with it somewhere? Who was the first? When did that start? Where did that come from? Already in the generation of Noah, it happened. Svina, Aniyah, first time we find them in Tanakh is in what book? Not Teva, but Svina or Aniyah. What book? Yonah. Psh, again, wow, what taught me them? In the book of Yonah. Yonah, Yared al Svina. They would say Onia Batashish. So we see it there. We see it there. Anyway, again, he goes on and on. Really fascinating stuff that he has here. But there was somebody else, a copycat, who tried to. There's always a ripoff. There's always the ripoff. It's probably from China, the Teva. It's a lot cheaper, but you see what happens when you buy from China and you don't pay the real cost. What happens? Boat fell apart. Didn't make it. No offense, China. If you're listening from China, sorry. Please forgive me. Perek Zion, Pasek Zion. Perek Zion, Pasek Zion. Let's go. We're going to go speed round a little bit. So many more Divrei Torah to share here. Perek Zion, Pasek Zion. The final call. What happened? Noach and his sons and his wife and his daughters-in-law come into the Teva. Mipnei... Why do they enter the Teva? Because of the flood. What does that mean? They entered because of the flood? What was the alternative? Why'd they enter? Again, you got to read the text with an eye towards critical thinking, asking questions. Why does the Torah go out of its way to tell us that when it was time to enter the Teva, Noah entered and he entered, why? Because of the water, the rain, the flood. What could it have said? Why else could he have entered? Because God told him, build the Teva and get inside. 
That's the reason. So Rashi, again, was clearly bothered by this question. Rashi says, You see from here that Noach, Noach was diminished in his emunah, in his faith. He believed God. He built a teva after all. He was a tzaddik. From his kepala to his fitzalach. He was tamim. Yet he's ain't mamim. On the other hand, he was not a believer because the only thing that actually got him, got him into that teva was what? When the rain began to fall. So what does that mean? How could it be? of Torah Or, Sefer Ha'aros, he says, there's a story. This doesn't appear in the Sefer. It appears in this other Sefer, that a Talmud once entered, a Talmud once came to him, and asked him for chizak. Asked him for chizak. So the mashkiach, Rabbi Zedelepshin, said, How's your amuna? So this Tamachacham was insulted. I know Gantz Shas. I'm a big Tamachacham. You're asking me about my amuna? What am I like? First year base medrash, a seminary girl? What am I, middle school? You're asking me if I have faith in my amuna? I'm a big Tamachacham. Tamachacham. What are you asking me? So, you have a Havamina, I don't have amuna? So Rabbi Zedelepshin answered him. He said, if you look in Chumash Breshis, you'll see. Noach, the same person the Torah called, a tzaddik and a tamim, also said, mikatne emuna, mamin ve'eno mamin. You see, you could be a big tzaddik, you could be a tamim, you could be a tamachacham, but emuna is so difficult. It's easy to have emuna in the abstract, in theory, conceptually. It's easy to have emuna and to say, yeah, of course I believe. You're challenged. They take a census. You believe in God? Psh, absolutely. I have faith. Part of the faith community. I'm a believer. Baruch Hashem. Amir Hashem. 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 Please God. Thank God. Every formulation you can think of. Absolutely. I'm a believer. Okay. Then what happens when your neighbor has something that you want? Do you get envious? Where's your amuna? What happens when you have a crisis? A challenge? Do you believe that God is navigating? He may be closing a door, he's opening another. What happened to your amuna? Where's the amuna when a competitor opens up and you get ruthless and cutthroat? What happened to your amuna that Hashem is the one who provides? Your child is in the world of Shidduchim. The area that we're supposed to have the most amuna than any other. The Gra rights. Gra rights, it's so backwards and paradoxical, upside down. You know, all of life, we're supposed to do Hishtadlas and not rely on the faith in Hashem. But Hashem is mezavek zivugim, since Maisa Breshas, what's Hashem busy doing? Making matches. So when it comes to minimize the hishtadlus, the initiative, get out of the way and let Hashem make the shidduchim. And what do we do? We do exactly the opposite. When it comes to parnasa and work and life, we say, yeah, Hashem should provide. And then when it comes to shidduchim, over initiative, excessive initiative we take. It's backwards. So you see from here, says Rav Zedel Epstein, from Parshas Noach, the fact that, that Chazal call him Mikatne Emuna. You could be a Tzaddik, you could be a Tamim, you could be a Tamachacham. Emuna is hard. When push comes to shove, when the rubber meets the road, when you're running late, or your flight's canceled, or the competitor opened, or the Shidduch's taking a long time, where's your Emuna then? Do you have Emuna? Or are you Mikatne Emuna? It's hard to have Emuna. It's hard to have Emuna. Zedelepshin says, you see this elsewhere. Who's the father of our people? Avram Avinu. Kosh who holds Avram accountable because of a question that Avram asked. Held us accountable. 210 years in Egypt in slavery. 
having a clean for Pesach every year is our punishment because Avram Avinu said two words. What were the two words? Come on, Talmidim. What were the two words? God said a promise about a future and a people and a continuity. And Avram looks at him and he says, How will I know? How can I believe? How do I know? Hashem says, oh boy. Seriously? 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 Noach, get in the teva. Not until it starts to rain. Seriously? Hashem looks down here and says to us, I'm so in your life. I'm so present. I'm so obvious. And when you don't see me, Hashem goes, seriously? Seriously, you don't see me? So we, today is Rosh Chodesh, by the way. Today is Rosh Chodesh. So what do we say in Halal? We say, Ha'amanti ki adaber. So tzaddikim say, how do we grow in Amuna? Ha'amanti ki adaber. We got to talk about Amuna. Talk about Hashem. Feel Hashem. See Hashem. Talk to Hashem. Thank Hashem. Ha'amanti. When will we grow with our Amuna? Ki adaber. Says Rosedel Epstein. A Noach and an Avram, even they, a Tzadik, a Tomim, Avram Avinu, could also, could also be Katnei Amuna. You see how challenging it is to maintain and to live with a great and a profound sense of Amuna. Kedusha Slavery of Levi Yitzchak, I've told you this before, Mikatnei Amuna says, it's not that Noach didn't have Amuna in Hashem. In whom did Noach not have Amuna? In himself. And that's why he got up in that ark and he pulled away, but he never stood up and really proclaimed he didn't realize one person can change the world and save the world. Right? That's the contrast. Avram gets up on a soapbox, he changes the world. Noach retreats into a teva, he saves himself. He didn't have a muna in himself. He didn't believe in his ability to change the world, to save the world, not only to save himself. Perek Zion, Pasuk Tez Zion. Perek Zion, Pasuk Tez Zion, page 34. I never noticed these words till this year. I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed to say. They came, male and female. Hashem commanded them. They all came into the boat. Who closed the door of the ark? Who closed the door? Hashem closed the door. Why? What's going on? Hashem closed the door. Why did Hashem close the door? Did you ever notice this passing before? Hashem closed the door? Why didn't, oh, good. Why didn't he want to close it? What? Did it have to do with the Amuna? Katni Amuna? Is this really going to happen, this flood? I don't want to close the door. I don't want to believe it. I don't want to close the door on the world the way I know it now. Beautiful. Absolutely possible. Possible. So the Chizkuni... Cheskuni says, Dabar Nifla. Cheskuni says that Hashem tells him, I want you to put two of each non-kosher animal, seven of each kosher animal, male and female. You need to have enough to be able to bring karbanos and for, the, for them to promulgate, repopulate the world. Two of each species, each animal. Cheskuni says, and then Hashem sends them to the teva. Noah standing on top of the ramp. They're coming two by two, seven by seven. He's registering them in, checking them off. It's like a cruise, you know, they got to wear their badge. Don't forget your ID. They're all checking in. Go find your life raft. They're all checking in. Did you order the kosher? They're all checking in. And Noach says, I don't know when to close the door. Why? Why? How does he know when he's done? 
How does he know if there are not more animals to come? Says the Chizkuni. Again, that's what I was telling you before, the way we started. You could read the same Parsha every year. There's a Pasuk that you've read the Parsha for. How many decades? You never noticed. By Yizgor Hashem Ba'adah. Kosh Baruch Hu closed the door. Ba'ado on his behalf. Why? Says the Chizkuni. Lo yamakiris komine brios. He didn't recognize all the species of creation. He didn't know when to close the door. By the way, how did Hashem close the door? That's worth a miracle, closing the door? That's worth his coming down? While we're on the subject of my pet peeves, when you have children who are growing up, half the time you go to sleep before them, I say, whoever's the last one to go to sleep, turn off the lights and lock the door. When I wake up and the door is unlocked and every light is on, whatever. Altar of Kelm. I thought was the altar of Kelm to raise my children. Anyway, so the door is closed. How did, how did Hashem close this door? By Zgor Hashem Ba'ado. He closed it on his behalf. Why, says the Chizkune? Noach didn't know when, when all the animals were in. How did he close it? Ayideh Haruach. The wind. A wind could close a door, a wind could open a door. That's how he did it, says the Chizkuni. That is what's going on. Now, the flood rescinds. Finishes. Peraches, Pasaches. Moving right along. Flood is over. And Noach wants to know, how are we doing? How does he find out? He sends out a Yonah. A Yonah. Why did he send the Yonah? Why did he send, sorry, the Oriv and the Yonah, both of them? What made Noah go into the Teva? The rain. But aside from the rain, why did he build the Teva? Who has been guiding him all along, telling him exactly what to do? Hashem. So why didn't he wait for Hashem to say, you're good to go, we've landed? Another joke they have, when the plane lands, to those who are still seated, Merry Christmas, to those standing in the aisles, Happy Hanukkah. Right? Everybody that plane lands, everyone waits for the ding, they time, can I be the first? As if they're going to get off any faster. As if it's going to help them get their stuff off the, out of the overhead. Everybody's in such a rush to disembark. And you've heard my routine about the miracle, 70 wheelchairs lining up to get on the plane, the miracle in the sky, the same people who needed the wheelchair to get on the plane, JetBlue, you land in JFK, they're running like no tomorrow. Off the plane, who needs a wheelchair? There's a smorg somewhere waiting for me. I got to get to the buffet. The early bird, I'm in. I got to go. Okay, you heard that routine. So everybody wants to disembark. So the Ribbon Shalom, he's got the loudspeaker. He's the one who said, buckle up, we're about to take off on the, on the, on the ark. There's about to be a flood. He's the one who says, we've landed. Don't get up till you hear the ding, till the captain says we're safely at the gate, yada, yada, yada. Don't get up yet. So why is Noah preemptively, prematurely sending out the Orev, the Yonah? What's he doing? What's he doing? All of a sudden, he's not listening and waiting for the captain? What's he doing? And by the way, the captain ultimately says it. When does Hashem say it? We're going to see that pasuk in a moment. Hashem says, It's time to disembark. Time to get off. So why is he sending them out on some scouting mission? So back to Reb Zedel Epstein. This isn't a Sefer HaOros. Reb Zedel Epstein says the following. Noach knew he was the Yachid Shanisha Mikolabri. He's the only one who survived of all of creation, of all of humanity. He knew he had a Tafkid. He had a great goal and a mission right now to repopulate 
the world, to build the world anew, to start it from scratch, to build it correctly to last. So he waited and he longed and he looked forward and he wanted. And when a person feels a mission, when a person feels a sense of purpose and a sense of mission, they don't wait for instructions. They're ready to go. This was a reflection of his thirst, of his yearning. You're right. If you're just like, I'm going somewhere, I'm waiting, I'll do what I'm told, I'll follow. But if you are the lone survivor, the designated survivor, if you are tasked with the mission and the purpose to save the world, then you don't wait. You're eager, you're running, you're looking, you're scouting, you're planning, you're getting ready to be able to, you're getting ready to be able to go. What happens? The Yonah comes back. Pasuk Yadala. Vihinei, turn the page 38. The Yonah comes back in the evening and the Yonah has an olive leaf in its bill. It's holding an olive leaf in its mouth. And Noach knew the waters had subsided enough that the Yonah, the dove, now had access to this olive branch. Rashi says, This was no ordinary dove. This dove had a message for God. The dove says to Hashem, Ribbonu Shalom, Mutav Yehu Mizonosai, Mururin Kezayas, and Mesurim Biyadecha, Veloye Mesukam Midvash, and Mesurim Biyad Basar Vedam. This Yonah comes back and says, Oh, Gewaldik, Geschmack, Olive Branch. Is an olive branch sweet, tasty, delicious? What does an olive branch taste like? It's bitter, it's wood. It's bitter, it's wood. As opposed to, what was the dove fed in the teva? Sweets, something delicious. So the dove comes back, the dove says to Ribbon Shalom, you know what, I'd rather eat something bitter that comes directly from your hand, God, than eat something sweet that has to be fed to me by a man. I'd rather be sustained and nourished, I'd rather come from you than have to live from man. Said Rabbi Chesko Sarna, said the great Mashkiach of Hebron, said the following, Noach gets smacked twice in the teva. In the Mabel story, Parsha's Noach, Noach takes it on the chin twice. He gets smacked twice. When was the first time? Pasukun, it says, Vayishayir ach Noach. What did Chazal say? The lion. We know the lion kicked him. Noach took one on the chin. He got hit hard. When is the second time? When the Yonah says to God, I'd rather be fed something bitter for you than even something sweet and delicious by that guy, Noach. Noach took it on the chin once physically and once emotionally. Which one was more painful? Which one was harder to hear? Hear? The bullying. Number two was harder. A whole year. He's working, he's providing, he's feeding, he's cleaning. And after all that, the Yonah who's so ungrateful, says, I'd rather be fed something bitter from you, Hashem, than something sweet from him. That hurt even more. Says the Mashkiach, says Rabbi Chezko, Every day Hashem feeds us. Every day He provides for us. Every day He's so good for us. And we forget. We forget to have that Hakar Satov and to thank Him. We forget where it really comes from. We forget to acknowledge Him as the, as the source. Hashem says, Tzeim and Hateva. When they arrive, when the water rescinds, He says, leave the ark. 
Why does he say Tzemen Ateva? But it's time to go. So Zohar says, when, Yo- when, Yona- when, Yona- when Noach left the Teva and he saw the whole world destroyed, he began to cry. So the Zohar, Kodesh Baruch looked at him and he said, Roash Shota, you foolish shepherd. Why are you crying now? You should have cried all the years you were building it. You should have cried the whole time that there was the impending doom destruction. Now you cry when you come out and you see the aftermath. Now you're crying when you see the consequence. When Noah understood that he made a mistake, what did he do, says the Zohar? That's when he offered the karbanos. That's when he offered the karbanos to Hashem as forgiveness, as atonement. Mikat Neamuna of Levi Yitzchak from the failure to believe in himself and the failure to believe that he could have saved the world, that's when he has to bring these korbanos of atonement. Says Rav Nassim, Rav, Rav Nachman's great Talmud, Likutei Allah, Shabbat Zayin, Samach Aleph, that I, unlike Avram Avinu, Moshe Rabbeinu, and other Nevi'im, who daven hard on behalf of everyone else, and were able to nullify the decree, even though Noach was a tzaddik and a tamim, he had one pegam. And what was his pegam? He didn't know how to inspire others. He didn't know how to inspire others. He knew how to arrive to be worthy of being called a tzaddik and a tamim himself. But to take that inspiration and share it with others, to be able to lift and enrich others, to be able to lower himself to the level of others. He lived in an ivory tower. He lived in retreat secluded in the refuge of the righteous. But an ability to live among, to interact with the wicked, to not be impacted by them, but to have them be impacted by you, Noah didn't have that. He didn't have that. He didn't have that ability. And that says Rab Nachman, through his Talmud Rab Nassim says, that's why Noach now needed this tzivui. Tsei minateva. The whole reason you got into this mess to begin with was you were living and hiding. You were safe and secure in an ivory tower. You just cared about yourself, my continuity, my future, my well-being. Tsei minateva. Get out of this ivory tower and now go interact with the world and elevate it and enrich it and transform it and change it. And that rings in our ears until today. Our area here in Boca Raton, is 140,000 Jews in Boca, there's a quarter of a million Jews in Palm Beach County, over 92% are unaffiliated. Gornish, nothing, nada. Affiliated was measured, if you work out at the JCC, you were affiliated, and yet 92% are unaffiliated. There are hundreds of thousands of Jews all over. Tsei Ateva, get off Montoya Circle. Tsei Ateva, get out of Century Village. When someone, when somebody bagels you at the supermarket, we have a responsibility. Noach, the world was destroyed because he was hiding in that ivory tower. He said, you know what? This is a from environment for me, for my family. I'm good to go. I've got a teva. While the world was drowning around him. Kodesh Baruch says, Rab Nassim, says Rab Nachman, what a beautiful Rab Nachman. Kodesh Baruch says at the end of it all, how do I know if you learned that lesson? Tzemenateva. Get out of that protective environment. Of course, we create protective environments for our family, for our community. We have to have standards. We have to have safety. But we also have to have an eye to a mission, how we're going to transform the world, how we're going to make a difference, how we're going to move that needle on intermarriage, on assimilation, how we're going to make a difference. We have an obligation. We have a responsibility. We have to. We have to. One more. Two more. We're running out of time. Story of my life. That's what's going to be on my tombstone. He ran out of time. After 120, that would be pretty accurate. Ran out of He was always running out of time. Vahaya Perak Tas Pasagidalad. Perak Tas Pasagidalad. Middle of page 42. Vahaya Barane Anana Laaretz Venirasa Keshes Banana. Kadesh Borcha makes a deal and he says, a rainbow, 
when I really want to destroy the world. Rashi quotes, When you, lemechs, when you losers, when you ungrateful, oisvav, reject, immoral, corrupt, no boundary people, when I want to destroy a world again, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to look at that rainbow and remember my commitment, our covenant, my promise not to do that again. Wonders, Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, the great Sichos Musr, says Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, Kosh Baruch Hu needs a rainbow to remember. He's the Ribona Shalolam. He's the omnipotent, infinite God. He needs a rainbow to remember. Says Rav Chaim Shmulevitz, no, he does not need a rainbow to remember. So why do we have the whole rainbow? Why do we have the whole phenomenon? Why do we have the whole sign and symbol? Why do we have the whole reminder for Hashem? You know why? Kosh Baruch Hu was leading by example. In a moment of Hisorus, in a moment of inspiration, you need to do something. You need to do something that will transform you. It needs to be recorded in a meaningful way. You need to do something that will have an impact, that will make a difference. He didn't need the rainbow to remember never to destroy a world again. Kosh Baruch says in this moment where I feel inspired, I feel inspired and motivated and aroused to make a promise and a pledge never to do it again, that needs to be captured in some meaningful way. And we too, you come off a of Yom Naraim, inspired and aroused and on fire, great. How are you capturing it? What are you changing about it? You're going to hang something different on the walls of your house, home screen of your phone or your laptop, taking on a Kabbalah of a new practice? You say, what do I have to? I was so inspired by Yom Naraim. Surely that will last through the year. Surely it won't. Kodesh Baruch Hu was trying to inspire us by example. That when you are inspired, when you're aroused, when you see, when there is something, be moved to make a difference with it. Last thing, we don't have time for, so I won't really tell you, my favorite new sefer, Otsiplos Torah, has a whole discussion that, the Dora Flug of the generation that built that tower, at the time all spoke one language. Then they were dispersed all over, and we were cursed with the United Nations. So that one language has been a curse on humanity ever since. What was the language they spoke? What language? They spoke one language. What language did they speak? They spoke, what was their language? The Gemara is a machlok, it's Megillah. And Belazar Biochen. They all spoke 70 languages, so it means that they all were fluent in every language. So one language, meaning they were all fluent, but it was 70 languages. Or no, maybe it was, maybe it was a different language. Maybe it was Lashon HaKodesh. It was Hebrew, Lashon HaKodesh. We spoke last Shabbos about the snake in Chava. Well, the Medrash says, Lashon, the snake spoke Lashon HaKodesh. Radak said, no, this Chava spoke snake. What did they speak? But I'll tell you something amazing. The Yaivitz, and the Sefer Migdal Oz, he quotes here in this Otsuplos HaTorah, says about Lashon HaKodesh, how did the whole world speak Lashon HaKodesh Hebrew? How? He says something amazing. He says, Let's say a child grew up. Drop a child in a jungle, they grow up not hearing any other language. They're not taught any language. In school, not through osmosis, by hearing others speak it. Does a child intuit a language? What language do they have in conversation in their own head? We spoke on Shabbat Shuvah. We exchange four million words a day in our own head. We talk to ourselves four million words a day are the conversations in our own head. So a child who never was exposed to any other language, what language do they speak to themselves in their own head? Do they intuit? Is there a default language that everyone is pre-programmed to know to speak? Says the Yaivetz, Yaschel Adaber Lashon HaKodesh Me'atzmo Beli Limud Klal. Zeo Machmashu Lashon HaMut Babo. The Gash Baruch created man 
that we instinctively, intuitively, we naturally have the ability, the knowledge to speak Hebrew. Okay, so I don't know what happens after that. The Rambam maybe says similarly. It's a fascinating insight. Again, he has many minor Makomas on this, but we are out of time. We're off next week. We resume in two weeks. We're off tomorrow morning, but we do have Behind the Bima tomorrow night with the great Rabbi David Foreman of Aleph Beta. He's amazing. Aleph Beta. His Torah is fantastic. If you like the Parsha, and you do because you're here, you've got to check out Aleph Beta. Tonight, I hope everybody's going to join us. Tonight in Hollywood, Rav Shechter, Rav Amar, Sephardi Chief Rabbi of Israel, former Sephardi Chief Rabbi. Incredible event tonight. Here's the best part. You ready? If that doesn't get you, Rav Shechter, Rav Amar, Tugidol Yisrael. Three magic words. Free buffet dinner. It's a free buffet dinner. Music, dancing, Gedola Yisrael, celebrating Smichas Chavar, an incredible Torah event. I hope you'll all be there tonight. Details on the back page of the week you get in the lobby. Till next time, stay happy, stay healthy, stay holy.